0: become your own superhero, Pat. How are you, sir?
1: G'day, Levin. How are you going, mate? Thanks very much, and uh, looking forward to having a chat.
0: Brilliant. Coming live to us from the office of Zukaz,
1: uh over in Wodonga. No, Wodonga, Wodonga. We're in the offices in Wodonga, yep. Got to, get, got to get our border pass to go back to New South Wales, but yeah, all good, mate. And Loud for, and clear.
0: For our overseas listeners or watchers, Wodonga and Albury are towns in New South Wales and Victoria that are right next to each other, and because of the current COVID lockdown, you've got to show your your travel pass to the border patrol there, so you can go and to and from work. So, but there's there's worse things that could be happening in our lives. Exactly. Now, Pat, you're our first middle distance champion on the show. It's a real privilege to have a man of your stature and caliber and also the father of one of my cricket mates in uh, Liam Scabble down at Melbourne University Cricket Club so thank you again for for taking your your generous time and sharing with us today I'd love to start off with a a challenging one if you could do your life over again would you change anything
1: See, that is a challenging one um... Look, I suppose I would say this. Um, I, I, I didn't plan to become an elite sports person. And for people that don't know me on, on the podcast, you know, as an Olympic and Commonwealth Games athlete for a long period of time. But interestingly, I came out of um, a team sport, um, cricket and football, because I was country New South Wales in Australia here, and we were brought up on cricket and and AFL and football because all we were close to Melbourne. Um, the only thing I would say is that uh, when I got involved in elite sport, I didn't realise how selfish you had to be to be so single-minded to be a track and field athlete. And I ended up being a track and field athlete for 17 years. So I probably would have done more work in that space with the psychology of the sport. That's the only thing I would have done in terms of you know my Olympics and Commonwealth Games because I, I love people and I love communicating and I love being involved in team sport and what I ended up being involved in was a quite single, single-minded, focused sport, um, you know, running 150Ks a week. And we had training groups and things like that. And I had a couple of great training, training groups, one in the UK where I lived in the UK for four years, and then another one, you know, here in Australia, or a couple of training groups in Australia. And that was always good, but I think looking back on my life, to ask you that question, look, I think, um, what am I now, 59? I've got four beautiful kids, married, um, no, I think I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. Um, and, uh, only thing I said that's probably related to my career in terms of athletics. I'll probably go back and say, okay, I wouldn't have minded making those adjustments, but I think if you're healthy and happy uh, in the late fifties, you're going pretty well.
0: Well, it's almost a trick question, Pat, because one of the things that, that I've been working really hard on myself in the last few years is, is not worrying about a, what, what I should have done, be what people think of me, and C, um, focusing on the future. Certainly by learning learning by mistakes and trying not to repeat mistakes. But I think, you know, your career, for those that don't know, you were in two Olympics, in the Los Angeles and Seoul Olympics in 84, 88. And you made four Commonwealth Games in addition to that. And I believe you were on the receiving end of being cut from at least one other Olympic Games as well, if you're happy to share that story with us.
1: Yeah, no, extraordinary. Yeah, it's funny, as, as, as my wife Lee said, that uh, over our lifetime I prepared uh, to try and make five Olympics. Uh, I made two. And they're, they're hard things to make. And a lot of my you know peers and people um, who, unfortunately, through injury or sickness, didn't make the Olympics. So, you know, I feel very blessed to have made two. But, you know, I was disappointed in 92. Um, I was the Australian champion. I won the Australian championship in 1992 in Adelaide. Uh, And I was selected in a squad um, to make the Olympics uh, in 92. And um, they decided um, there was five of us that were sort of put in um, um, a squad. They picked the team and then they had five other people in a supplementary squad uh, who were looking at depending on performances. So that was – so we travelled to the UK uh, and were part of the team, had a ticket to Barcelona, and then subsequently they cut those five people from the team. So I had a ticket to Barcelona saying I was going to the Olympics, but then we got chopped. What's so funny about that was I did more to qualify in 92 – than I did in '84 and '88, so that was quite disappointing, really. But look, I I balance it out a little bit by the fact of saying, look, I know peers of mine and you know good friends of mine who you know didn't make Olympic teams because of sickness and injuries, and the fact that I went to two, you know, I'm feel blessed to happen. But you know, I was very disappointed. You know, someone told me that you know, Billings numbers, the, the Olympic village numbers were smaller in Barcelona, down by two and a half thousand. And they put this criteria that had to be in the top 16 in the world um, for Australians. And at that stage, I was 18th in the world, so I got chopped. But what's ironic about that, the guy that won the Olympic gold medal was a guy called Fermo Catso, and he was 32 in the world. So you know, when you get, you know, 30 or 40 people, like in golf or tennis or any, any walk of life, you know, 40 best cricketers, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of difference between, um, you know, after the top 10, there's not a lot of difference in the next 30 or so. It's all very close. So, yeah, I was really disappointed from that. But um, as I said, I had at that stage, I had um, two small kids. You know, one of those was Liam. He was two or three and had responsibilities. So you soon focus and you've got to keep going. You know, you can't – I think that was the, the main thing is uh, at that stage, I was a father. I was thirty-one. I didn't have a chance. I really had to, you know, focus and get on, uh, and do what had to be done to be a a family and get the family going.
0: Would you say becoming a father for the very first time totally shifted your the amount of effort that you put into creating that safe environment for for having a family?
1: Look, I think. I think I had the realization in 1988 I was ranked highly in the world in 88 so I would ran the 10th fastest time in the world in 1988 for 1500 um, I'd had a very good season in Europe I had some good races against some very good competitors including you know Steve Cram who was either one or two in the world at that stage and uh, had a great race with him in, in Crystal Palace in London in uh, leading up to the Olympics Uh, And I had a particularly bad Olympics. Uh, What happened was I'd been living in the UK and I tried to uh, base myself with the rest of the Australian distance running fraternity who were going down into Japan. But, look, because of politics and sports and i have been away from Australia and i have been living, I had to go into the village early. So I was in the village, oh, I don't know, three weeks before my race. So, look, I was pretty well cooked by the time I even got to the the start of the heats, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been in a, a village for three weeks where I really would have liked to have been outside, take the pressure off. And, you know, that, and I, I got a little bit sick, and I probably made more of it. But what I was getting to the answer to your question was, at that stage in my life, I was 27, um, and I had my whole life built on one stilt. So if you think about a house that's built on one stilt, it, it can't stand up and it collapses down. So When I ran badly, didn't get past the heat, um, when I was ranked highly, I realised then that I had to make adjustments to my life and have a more balanced life. So to put other things around it, including, you know, work, study uh, and plan for the future. So when you have setbacks, it's like anything in the walk of life, that if you have setbacks and you're... You need to have other pillars around you that support you going forward. And that's what I, I, I decided to make that structure, though, that I wanted to keep running, and I did. I kept running for another, you know, eight years through until I was 36, 37. But I made sure I had, you know, a study, work, family around, uh, and I had a more balanced lifestyle instead of just being uh, a singly focused athlete. And uh, when that when that went badly, I had nothing else to fall back on. So that was a life lesson, really after the Olympics in 88, and it's a, it's a life lesson for anybody that, um, you know, you need to have other pillars around you, whether it's your family, it's your faith, or other things that, you know, support you. So that was the changing point. Um, I don't think I became any more determined or focused with my athletes when I had it started to have a family, but it's certainly um, uh, was a, you know, real eye-opener in the sense of, you know, having this little baby sitting in front of you, realising... That they were relying on you for their future, so that was, you know, wonderful but also challenging. And any father or mother, or would, well, I'm sure, would say that.
0: Well, I've had the uh, the pleasure of meeting three of three or four of your children, uh, Liam, Benny, and Jack. I haven't had a chance to meet. I think Katie's the the, well, the daughter. daughter. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and before long before this podcast came about, I I when I had met you, I had complimented you on on how well. You had raised those kids in conjunction with your wife, no doubt, um, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. A lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show, with with particularly a lot of my own background, Pat is growing up in a as a child of divorce and the impact that that can have on on the children and the family, and seeing the difference in a in what you would determine as a functional family environment. Which, on the surface of things, it seems like the Scamell family have it pretty well sorted. Is that is that a facade, or is that a pretty good guess of what's actually going on?
1: Yeah, that's look. Um, no, it's a very good guess. I mean, we we Lee and I we didn't realise this until we had um, young Ben, the boy, our boy with Down syndrome, in uh, intensive care in Melbourne in Box Hill for uh, 71 days in 2015, I mean, it's a complicated story, but to cut a long story short, you know, Ben um, had a procedure, um, we came back up to Orbi wodonga area, for people that don't know that, it's a population of around about 100,000 people. And we had our procedure done in Melbourne. After that procedure, we came back up here. He had a rupture, and it also then went septic up here, so then he was air ambulance to Melbourne, and then we had seven months in Melbourne, and 71 days of that, were in intensive care. Uh, It's a long way to get to answer your question, but the nursing staff and the medical staff said, you know, you know, we haven't come across a family like that, and like you guys that communicate and love and laughter, and I suppose that's been our motto about, um, you know, we didn't think we were any different to anyone else, but you know, we we're on, on purpose. We try and keep things pretty simple, and we make sure. Communications, a big one in our family, and uh, and love and laughter. And if you keep it that that simple, it, it works pretty well. And we didn't think we were that different, but after uh, many many times, that nursing staff said how great it was to work with us. You know, it was a great a great honour for us to realise that. You know, the, we have got some chemistry. Um, and that in terms of family, it's like running anything: running a business, running a uh, cricket club or a football club. And you know, I'm really big on communication. I probably drive my kids nuts on that and, um, and I think effective communication makes a massive difference um, in all sorts of things in relationships in business and any walk of life and if you can get through that with communication you've got you're halfway there and I think that the strong thing about our family is communicating.
0: Well I want to explore this a little bit further what, what, what's a sign of great communication from a scam family point of view?
1: Um, yeah good question I suppose. Um, We would know, um, obviously, anything that's important that's going on in anyone's life. Now, all my children now are uh, are adults. Uh, Even young Ben, the the boy with Down syndrome, he's about to turn uh, 26. But, um, and all the other three are young adults. But I suppose that... um, everyone has a fair handle on what everyone else is doing in terms of where they're at in their life and their goals and dreams so um it's probably shared um shared experiences i suppose is probably the the best way to put it Um, i mean i really can't put a finger on what is the um the panacea of um what makes it work but i would say that people don't feel left out and everyone's included. There's, it's, a, it's, it's very inclusive. Um, so that's basically it, really. That it's a very inclusive environment.
0: Where did these attributes come from? Uh, is it driven from your side of the family, Pat, or from your saint of a wife, Lee?
1: Yeah. Um, or both. Well, Lee's certainly a, Lee certainly. <laughs> certainly a saint. Um, she has to put up with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, look, look. Both Lee and I came from. I honestly think there's a lot of thing about uh, the Irish, the Irish background. About um, the Irish, uh, you know, love, uh, love laughter. They love having a good time, and they love, they love people. And I think there's a lot of origins. Uh, both our sides come from an Irish backgrounds. You know in various degrees and I think there's a lot about the Irish that comes through in our family which I love and um, you know uh, socialising you know having a beer and relaxing barbecues and and communicating and I think that's that influence and I haven't thought about it until you had the question but I think that's why we have a great affinity with the Irish particularly us and obviously my name's Patrick as well um and Lee's family came from an Irish background as well. So I, I love that connection with the Irish and I love their personality. And so I think that's, um, and look, I think patience, you have to be very patient, uh, when you have children. And, uh, Lee has, uh, taught me that as well. Uh, and particularly when you have the person with special needs like we have. And, um, and he be under our care, he's under our care all the time. And, uh, so I think patience in family um, and understanding has been the, 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 uh, the crux to it, I suppose.
0: Well, just on your, your lovely wife, Leah, I heard through a family member that when Benny was going through that, in, that intensive care, 71 days in the, in the ICU, whatever it was, that she reportedly never left his site. She stayed in Melbourne, I think, almost the whole time. And when I, when I heard that, I got a little bit emotional. I must admit, because you know that that's a that's a huge commitment, and that's the sign of someone that has the pa- the patience of a saint. And I'm and I'm really keen to explore this, Pat, because you're you know you, you've you've competed at the highest level, and have you know s- certainly been the top uh, runner in Australia, and you know competed in two Olympic games and four Commonwealth games, and hold the record for the most amount of sub four minute miles in this country as far as i'm aware unless it's been knocked off in the last 24 hours and i want to explore where you got these attributes of mental toughness and fortitude because i had a look at my strava before we jumped on here and my fastest 400 meter time is a minute five and it's the downhill section of the anderson street hill (laughs) and 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 I was running in Vibram toe shoes and and had to take my shoes off because they I felt like they were going to burst into flames. And that was I gave it everything. And the running that you guys do at this elite level, you're doing 400 meters every minute. Um that's when right. you when you're doing so, like a 15 hour.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So so four, four minute miles that was why it was so magical. It's uh it's four laps under four minutes, obviously. Yeah.
0: So so I, I wanna know how you get to to be able to push yourself physically mentally emotionally spiritually to to be able to get to that level because they they are attributes that you picked up from something or someone along along your your childhood would be an educated guess
1: yeah well, look, look, look it's a great question i mean i i um you know, where does it come from i'm not sure i mean I remember at age 18 coming out to home and um, talking about what I was going to do, you know, career-wise. And I came out to mum and I said, how long would it take me to become the Pope? Um, And she said, oh, probably 50 or 60 years. And I said, oh, okay. said, I said, i probably want to go down that pathway then. Um, So, the analogy there was I was always ambitious. Now, um, I'm not sure where that came from, but if I go back to the origins of my schooling, um, I started young, you know, four and a half, or just on four and a half, in class sizes of 80 and 90, and I got left behind. Yeah, so, and I got left behind at a young age. So um, I had learning problems, uh, at a young age, and um, you know the, the Catholic the Catholic system in those days, and I'm sure they would acknowledge that. You know, particularly it was a pretty tough, demanding system in terms of the Christian Brothers, and uh, you know, obviously a lot of a lot of great people, but it was also quite challenging, and you either had to you know survive in it. Um, and I got left behind and there was one particular time when in grade three, um, I got in trouble for a spelling mistake with the Christian brothers. Um, and my mother, uh, the brother wrote on the work, this work is despicable, and went home. Went mum home. told me this years later. And um, my mother had me, you know, mum was older, so mum was 42 when I was born. So. So how old was I then? I don't know. Uh, five, six, seven, so she's nearly 50. And I was the last of six from, as I say, an Irish Catholic background. And mum charged down there, and all the all my other siblings all went through the Catholic system all the way through from um, all their education was in the Catholic system. And she charged down to the Priston the, the Brothers from school and said, She said, the only good thing about this, this on Patrick's work is that young Patrick can't read the word despicable and subsequent, <laughs> subsequently took me out of the school and put me over into the public system. So I went into the public system, you know, two or three days later and it was life-changing. I always remember, and God bless the soul, I don't know where she is. She must have been a young teacher at that stage. She would have been 24 or 25. On day one, at the end of the day, she came up to me and she said, um... After finishing work, he came up to me and said, "Are you okay, dear?" I thought, I thought I died and gone to heaven because no one was saying that to me. over <laughs> The Christian brothers at that stage, <laughs> as I said, and I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't downplay the Christian brothers because they've done a great job over many times. And the way things have turned out, to, you know, a lot of good people have been hurt um, by, you know, smaller amounts of people who have done the wrong thing. But there was a lot of good people in the Christian brother system as well. But in terms of You know, the way the system was with overcrowding kids in the late 60s, I got left behind. But when I went across there, it was life-changing. So I was behind, and I remember when I had to read in class um, and people laughing because I was so far behind. So I think that drives you as well when you realise I'm behind and then people were laughing behind you or laughing to you because I couldn't read properly. And then... Um, I happened to be um, the best athlete and the best AFL footballer at the school for my age and as I developed through. So I got my acceptance through sport. So I got confidence through sport and I got acceptance as well. So I grew in confidence um, that way as well. And then as I got confident, my learning improved as well. So by the time I got to you know the high school, I basically caught up all my reading, and I was travelling with everyone else. I was never a great speller, and I still not. But I thank Bill Gates for uh, all all the work they've done on uh, Microsoft. So I'm great. I'm okay on spelling now because of that. But yeah, so I think that drove me. I think that's the early origins of. Um, but you know, if you, you if you get behind and then you're ridiculed, which I was, um, it's also it's a deep it's a deep driver. And um, but I know that my sport gave me the confidence to, to grow. And I say that to anybody that has um, you just gotta find your way, um, and you just gotta have that support. And it only takes a couple of a couple of supportive people around people that can change people's lives. And I'm, I'm and it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, seven or seventy, you know, you can make and look and look at what you you've done yourself. It it doesn't, you know, whether you're Thirty or forty or fifty or sixty, you know, you can always make improvements, and you only need a couple of people to encourage you, and, and away you go. And so that was where that's where the deep seated drive comes comes from. And um, and I've always been very determined. Um, I, I don't know whether I've answered that question or what you wanted, but in terms of what happened with Liam and I and Benny, so in the ICU. Um, he was comatose, so he had intubated and he was out, um, cold. So what would happen is we would stay with him um, basically 16 hours a day uh, in ICU because there was no bed there. Um, and But when he started to come good and he was um, with it, um, because he had didn't have the cognitive ability to understand that you had at that stage he had 11 tubes in, five going in and uh, five going in and six going out, you know drain his tubes and drugs and all sorts of things. He, he didn't have the cognitive ability to understand it. He'd pull them out or, or try and pull things out or try and pull his tracheotomy out. So we, we stayed in there all the time and then the nursing staff realized the love and compassion that we had and realized that they having us in the room with them, even though there was a nurse there full time, it was very important that they had a family member like Lee or I or one of us there all the time, so Benny didn't kill himself by pulling out his drugs or his medication. And so once he got to once so we'd stay there until midnight. Um, so this is when he was um, still medicated, but he was off. He'd wake up in the mornings, but still in ICU. So one of us would stay there until twelve o'clock at night. And then one of us be back there at five o'clock in the morning, so back in the room. So that was, because um, the first 30 odd days, 35 days, he was knocked out cold, you know, he was um, in a coma. And then the next half, he was still in ICU, but, um, you know, medicated. And then we had another five months in hospital. And then that, after that period, so in that, we had another five months after that in hospital, and Lee slept in the room every day. So she, she didn't leave that. Well, she left to have a cup of coffee and one family member had some breakfast, but she basically slept in the hospital for five months uh, on a bed beside him. And look, uh, look, is it, it a remarkable woman and, you know, she's um, been a great balance for me. And, I, I mean, I, I just can't speak highly enough of the balance that we've been able to get. Um, as a family, and it's worked out well, mate. I suppose that's why getting a life partner that works well for you is um, really important. Well, where did you meet? Oh, uh, gee. Um, we actually met through – I actually met her through a running club. Um, we had – there was an Be Athletic Club and there was another one. Um, no, no, we're actually the same running club. It was the Be Rodonga Athletic Club. This is – I first met her when she was about 15, and I thought, gee, she's a really nice person. And I, I said I wouldn't mind marrying someone like that. I think that's what spooked me off me for about five or six years because I, would met her when she was about 15. <laughs> but we actually met, we actually met up a couple of years later and started going out when we were 17, 18. So a couple of years later, yeah. So we met through athletics. Um, and Lee was quite a couple of athletes, but she didn't like, Lee didn't like getting nervous in the competition where I sort of thrived on the competition. I love, you know, you know, I love, I'm a bit dogmatic, you know, like this is what Liam, my son who plays cricket with, with the Auckland club, you know, um, you know, I prefer to play, play like Jeff Boycott. Don't get me out. You on me and you know, I won't get out. I'm not going to let you get me out. You know? So, you know, if I'm three night out and, uh, off 50 balls, I'm happy, you know. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I just I'm very dogmatic on that. So I think that's where the determination comes from. And um, I don't know, assisting grain. And maybe that comes from the stuff at school where you sort of you get a bit ridiculed and you get left behind and it makes you more determined.
0: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. I um I've been thinking about this this the psychology behind this a lot, Pat, because you know a lot of the things that I've had to in, in my own journey, I've had to unlearn a lot of behaviors and, and I'm taking on as many new positive ones as I can. And it's, there's no, there's no rule book for it. And in, in earlier this year, I, I wrote my very first book and, and in there, there was a, a pivotal moment where a school teacher at the age of six gave me or gave my family 30 bucks back in 1986 to, so I could have a birthday party because we were broke, and when Mum was a was a single woman, and we recently reconnected, and and I was able to read her the chapter of the book that and and she was named, and it was an amazing, humbling experience sharing that with her, and she was blown away, obviously, and you know she remembered me um, as a kid because um, she was only a, a temporary teacher. Um, but she didn't remember the actual act of giving. And it was really nice to to bring that back up with her. And it was that that generosity that she showed me that had a really pivotal ef- effect on my on my life going forward. So I can see the opposite happening when the bad stuff happens and the importance of being around as many good people as you can that are more likely to give you those positive reinforcements and give you the kick up the bum in a good way rather than you know doing something dysfunctional and it sounds like you might have had a couple of those good ones early on enough to you know maybe with a bit of natural talent and then all of a sudden you're around elite level coaching and then it just is a self-perpetuating cycle how does that sound
1: yeah look i look I, and look for me too i i lost my father with cancer he was 27 and he, he was a great mate of mine but uh, and then Dad was older. He was 41, 42 when I was born. But he he got to a stage in his career where he had more time. So even though when I talked to all my siblings, they all had different experiences, um and I was a bit fortunate that by the by the time that I came through, he was in management career and had more time. So I I was a bit blessed. And everyone else had left home because I was sort of the last one at home. So I, I was blessed to have that. And he he him and mum were, you know, instrumental in, in helping me. So the love of family makes a massive amount of difference. And if you haven't got, you know, like in your situation, you get a couple of people that give you that support early on. And look, you look at times like now, which are, you know, globally very challenging. You know, if you look through your database of contacts on your phone and you think, look, I haven't spoken to X for 12 months or two years you're never quite sure, you know, reaching out and saying, you know, how are you are going to somebody makes a difference because you're just not quite sure how they're going. So I'm a big one on that. I'm, I'm a really big one on that on communication and just checking on up on people and seeing how they're going. And, you know, they'll give you as little or as much information as they want. But I I just think that we all need a bit of support. doesn't matter what part of life you're in. We all need, you know, you know, a bit of a question and ask, you know, how you're going, and um, and this is a really challenging time for society.
0: Well, that's not the only great attribute that you've passed on to your kids, Pat. Because when I, in talking to Liam, one of the, the the amazing things that he said that you passed on to him was the power of networking. Can you can you talk us through that a little bit more?
1: Oh, gee, I, look. I just realized I just realized that in business and in life in general, if you keep a vibrant network, it, that, that is the best way to sustain your career. And I, I passed it on to the kids. You just you, you you know I found it in sport, I found it in business. And if you go about if you go about networking in a genuine sense that you go in there with um, not all about you, but also uh, an attitude, how can I help you as well in business? And it's a mutual two-way street. You get a lot of benefits out of that, and you're just never quite sure where it's going to end up. So you don't go out there with a plan, well, I'm going to meet... um, I'm going to meet Laban Ditsburn and say okay what what can Laban do for me it's more about how do we work together for mutual benefit and I've always I've always gone in with that philosophy about you know how do we work and I don't know where that comes from but I, I learned it at a young age um and I like to I like to give and take and to be able to balance it out that way so if you know, you come across people and, and, and then people see you as genuine. I think the word genuine, if you come across as genuine um, in business or in sport, people see that and that makes a big difference in terms of networking. You know, if you're only going down there for not the only for the benefits of yourself, well people see through that. But if they see you as a genuine character, interested in what they're doing, well it's it's a it's a it's a great benefit for both parties. And I just keep on telling the kids um, and I suppose, you know, when I came out of sport, um, I, didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I focused on my athletics uh, for 17 years. Um, I did some short courses in management. I, I've been through the Victorian Institute of Management, sorry, I've been through the VIS the in Melbourne uh, later in my career. And they, did, they were sponsored by the Australian Institute of Management. And I did a lot of short courses through them. And then um, I had to get a job because I had three children after my career and I started doing part-time work. And all my jobs came through networking, you know, ringing up and just saying, look, I'm doing this, I'm starting this. And and so the hidden job market, I suppose, is where I, it, you know, entrenched in me that if you really want to get a job or you want to go ahead, you also just, besides doing the normal things through, you know, the standard market through seek or social media or all those things, you've got to make sure you, you, you're well connected. And, I, you know, when I had a young family, I needed to make sure that was, you know, I was. And I keep on saying the kids, just keep your networks going and do it in a genuine way that, you know, you're interested in what other people are doing as well. So that's, that's about as, as basic as it gets, really.
0: Well, no, I love it. And I was curious to know, have you ever done any work with Zig Ziglar or read any of his books or listened to any of his tapes?
1: No, I
0: haven't. I haven't. So he, he's dead now, but he was largely regarded as one of the great motivational speakers and authors of our time. He was a devoutly religious man, but he only sort of found found himself with that at about 40. But one of the great quotes that, that anyone who's listened to any of my other podcasts will have heard me say on many occasions, he's very famous The quote of saying, you can get whatever you want in this life as long as you help enough other people get what they want and and it's and it really struck in a uh, chord with me and I, and I've tried to adopt that as much as I can, especially in the last 12, 18 months when I first heard his tapes and we were fortunate enough to have his son Tom Ziegler on the show uh, which will be released by the time this comes out and and pick his brain with regards to the importance of coming from a place of like exactly what you said, what value can I impart into this person's life rather than coming from a place of fear and scarcity. And, and, and I, so I really identify with that and wherever you pick it up, it doesn't matter. It's so, so important to, to a successful flourishing life in my opinion, at least.
1: Yeah. Look, look even this morning, I had a friend of mine that missed out on getting a job. Um, and uh, I said, look, and he was going to ring up and say you know get quite cross in saying look my resume does this and all this sort of stuff and that might be the case but i said if you go in with that attitude straight away you're going to put the people off offside so the trick is and i've passed this on to a lot of people is that you know if you miss out on a job you just ring up and keep it simple and say look just trying to get some feedback because i'm trying to improve I, you know i'm looking to go in the space keep the relationship opening and look you know, one of the best jobs I've ever had was with the Australian Sports Commission and I missed out on that job early on. And then um I rang up and kept inquiring about, you know, what else I needed or what, and then six months later, I get a phone call whether I'm still interested in the job. You know, it, it's just about communication. And if you, you get so upset with people and abuse them about why you didn't, you're never going to get the job there, that's for sure. So it's, it's just about, about finding, and you find out a lot about yourself. When you ask the question about, you know, what else do I need to do? Or, you know, you, you learn much more by someone making making these. Now, you might not agree with them, but you say, okay, I'll have a think about it. Yeah, maybe that's an area I can improve. And that's one of the things I've said to the kids as well. I mean, that's, that's my kids and other people. I mean, it's, you, you've got to think about particularly employment and things like that what can you learn from someone that gives you a knockback? That's the only way you can. You can't go and it's no, there's no benefit to go in there and abuse someone because if you should get a job. That's not going to help you.
0: And coming from 14 years working as, as a, a technology recruitment consultant, Pat, I couldn't agree with you anymore.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that, so no, right? no, and yeah.
0: thank, thank them for their time. And, and a lot of the, like, especially when you don't know what's going on in someone's life, a lot of the times the reason you didn't get the job has nothing to do with you. And I I think once people uh, get an opportunity to work in recruitment and they see how things work from time to time, then you just, then you just let it run and you go, okay, then that's not meant to be. And because you kept the dialogue open with, you know, the AIS or whoever it was, you know, they remembered how you made them feel and had you gone off at them, there's no way you would have got that job. And, and, you know, look what happened off the back of that. So you know I, again, i I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. It's really, really important.
1: Yeah it goes back to communication, and as I said i I bang on about it all the time about communication, and that's that's another functionality of that of of course.
0: I want to change topics just a little bit, Pat, because there's one particular story that I found out about, which I thought was very interesting. And if I you're happy to share it with us, the story about you and Steve Monagetti and Falls Creek?
1: Gee, my, gee. Uh, well, the background of this is that Steve and I were training up at Falls Creek. Um, I don't know, it would have been the early 90s and uh, Steve and I at that stage, uh, I'd come across to Chris Wardlaw, um, who was Steve Monagetti's coach and if, if people know um, Chris Wardlaw, Chris was a, an Australian Olympic athlete and I'm an Australian Olympic coach and one of our um, great characters in, in distance running in Australia, as I said, and a, and a very good athlete or great athlete in his own right, uh, representing Australia at um, two Olympics. So um, Chris was coaching Mona and I, and um, this is early 90s. What uh, time of the year? It was summer? Uh, summer. Summer. Uh, summer in, um, at, at Falls
0: Creek. Um, Which is a ski resort yep, for those who don't know. Yeah, ski resort. Yep,
1: yep, at about um, just about eighteen hundred feet, uh, uh, 1. 1. 1.8 meters. Yeah, so about six thousand feet, we're just below that. Um, and this week has been, as people know, in the Australian Alps, it can snow any time of the year, it's a particularly particularly bad week. Um, so most of our running um, had been done in the village, and we, but. Steve and a lot of distance runners um, are, if mono ever sees this he will laugh his head off but they they're, they're fastidious about doing the same run on the same day to keep their routine down. so if it's a long run day on Wednesday or a Sunday and it has to be done you, you, you just got to be got to be done you know so this was a Wednesday and we had to do a long run. Out over the back on the on the high plains so from Falls Creek, so there is the um, the aqueduct from Falls Creek, which is quite sheltered by the trees, and then you spend I don't know six or seven k's on the bottom part of the aqueduct, and then you go up onto the high plains. And as we were running out onto the aqueduct, I said to Miner mate, we can't go up onto the hill because we won't be able to see. It, it was already snowing. It was already snowing on the aqueduct. It was freezing cold. It was blizzard on the aqueduct. It was plenty of snow. I said, by the time we get up the top, we won't be able to see. Anyway, Mona being Mona, um, he said, no, it will be okay. It won't be that bad. It'll be fine. No problems. So this run, for people from my running fraternity know it well, it's called Fitzgerald's Hut. So you run out from Langford's Gap up to Fitzgerald's Hut. And, and part of the procedure is that you have to run to Fitzgerald's Hut Sign the book, then back up onto the snow plains and then back loop back around onto the onto the road, which takes you back to Langford's Gap. It's about a 16k run. Anyway, we got off the the Langford's Gap aqueduct and made our way up onto the snow plains and it was just it was ridiculous. I mean, you could hardly see. But the funny side of the story, and I'm probably not doing it justice. Um, there was a young father and uh, a father and his young son that were camping in the hut and they had the fire going, they had all the equipment, they had the backpack, they had the billy going. And Monica and I ran in there out of the blizzard to sign the book and just to make sure we always signed the book. And we ran in there and this guy. Uh, he would prob- probably been telling his father, you know, he's been probably telling his young son, look, we're probably going to be camping here for a couple of days, you know, we'll have to stay here. And morning and I ran in, in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, maybe long shirt, and a pair of gloves. And he just, this guy was just looking at us like, I'm never going to see those guys again. There's no, da- there's no way they're going to survive. <laughs> so, so we signed the book and headed off. And the other funny thing about it, and Mona wrote about it in his book, or one of his uh, one article somewhere. I said, Mona, I cannot. I said, my my hands are so cold. I said, I I can't feel my hands. And he said, Look, put your hands down the front of your pants and keep your hands warm. So here I am running across the snow plan plains with arguably, you know. Him and Deep, the greatest marathon runners of all time for Australia. And got, I'm running with Mono with my hands down my pants to keep my hands warm. And we got back. I don't know. But it was one of the stupidest things we ever did. But we were bloody lucky, I can tell you that. So it was a funny story. And I probably haven't done it justice. But I'll never forget the look on the father's face. He'd been telling his son that, gee, you know, we're going to be here for a few days. We might be snowed in. But when Mono and I ran in there, he just couldn't me be bewildered. Anyway, good story.
0: It is a great story. And Steve Monaghetti, uh, I, like he's not anyone that I've ever had an opportunity to meet yet, but is, would he be your favourite distance running athlete ever or do you have someone else in mind?
1: Um, well, look, I've been, I've been great mates with, um, with Deke and Mona. Um, uh, so I had two phases. I had with Deke and Pat um early in my career when I was at the AIS in Canberra. And then the second part of my career was Chris Waterlaw and um, and Mona. So um, so and they're, they they both remain mates of mine. Um, really good people. And look, the other one people in the UK, if you, if you've ever reaches people in the UK, the guy called Dave Moorcroft. Who was um, I went and trained and lived in the UK for four years. And Dave's coach was a guy called John Anderson. I was coached by John. Uh, and Dave Moorcroft was a former world record holder for 5,000 metres, and Dave was, um, uh, you know, remains, you know, one of my best friends, and uh, he's with Deacon, one of the, you know, those people who, uh,
0: you know, I got
1: inspiration from, and I look, I think all those guys too, one of the things I loved about people like, um, and there's others, but, Those guys made it to, you know, world record holders, world championship, world champions, um, Commonwealth champions, and they all did it clean. Whereas, you know, a lot of, you know, because of the Eastern Bloc influence, there was a lot of problems in the sport in the 80s and 90s still with drugs in sport. But I always knew what gave me great heart in terms of the sport that sometimes struggled with drug culture, particularly from the Eastern Bloc countries, was People still made it. it. Took a little bit longer, but also maybe a little bit longer and a little bit more perseverance. But you know, you could do it as a, you know, as a clean athlete, and those guys did. And you know, that was always very encouraging. But um, in terms of distance runners, those are you know, there's others as well. But you know, Deacon Minor, and you know, and, you know, Chris Wardlaw, you know, my coach, you know, all outstanding people. So I had a, I had a lot of great role models, which is important, as we talked about.
0: Well, I was going to explore this a little bit more. What, what are some of the great attributes that you picked up from these these heroes of yours?
1: Um, look, I think early on, particularly when I went to the AIS out of country New South Wales uh, with Pat Klawesi and, and Deke, um, a lot of the things I picked up from Deke, and Deke's a little bit older than me. Deke could be five or six years older than me. I suppose it was around about... Um, structure, commitment, passion, organisation, and also trying to keep a level head on the ups and downs. So I often came across people, and I think it's the same in life as well, mate, that you need to, you, have, you can't get too low and you can't get too high. I mean, the highs are great, but you've just got to keep a balance on things. And it doesn't matter what you do in life, if you can just bring them closer together, you'll have a pretty balanced life. So particularly when you're dealing in elite sport, I suppose I use that analogy more in, in sport, in elite sport, and in business, part, I suppose, as well. But, um, if you you know, you can't get too hard on yourself in elite sport. And, you you know, you can have great highs, but you just got to keep a balance on those things. So perseverance um, through hard times and keeping a balanced outlook, I suppose, is what I learned. And, you um, and I think one of the things about I learned of Deke watching him train uh, in those early days in Canberra was you know, a lot of people you know, loved training with Deke and they would come out you know, once a week or twice a week to run with Rob Costello in the forest in Canberra and they'd try and beat Deke and they never worried him in training. I mean, Deke was doing 180 k's a week, 200 k's a week, but as long as he did his training every day... He never worried about if someone beat him in a session. He was simply focused on the work that he needed to be to become world champion. So he never, he never focused on someone coming out for a special session, uh, you know, to beat him when he was doing his heels or hard sessions. He just made sure that he had a body of work, and it was all about a body of work, not so much a single session. And it's the same with you know, cricket, football, whatever. You know, to get yourself right to play sport, it's a body of work that gets you ready to perform. And, mate, I know you love your cricket, like me, and, you know, it's a matter of just getting yourself in, in the right frame to be able to play your best on the day, and that's what I learned about just making sure you do the training to be able to do that. It doesn't matter at what level. You know, if you want to play, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to learn how to play golf at the moment, so um, better, I'm trying to, just trying to put a body of work together that makes me better.
0: i want to know how painful physically it is pat when you are 1.5 miles through a one mile sorry if you're one uh yeah you're 1500 meters through a one mile sprint what sort of pain are you in when you're competing at the top
1: top level Yeah, it's a good question. I've been asked that a lot over the years. Um, The pain you get is more in training, in preparation to do it. The work you do to get to that stage, because by the time you you get to a race, yeah, it's difficult, but you're so focused on racing, you don't feel any pain. The only pain you feel more so, I found, was the work that you did in training and preparation. Yeah, it can be painful in a race, but um, it's not until the last. In, in my case, in the 500 metres, not until the last 300 metres, 200 metres, where the pace is really on. But a lot of stuff that you do in training is there to simulate what you're going to what you're going to experience in the race. So you're basically training yourself to be ready for it. So if you come into a lot of pain in the race earlier than that, where you're not going to hang on you're not going to be in the race. So you're actually doing adaptation to the workload, to what you're going to experience in races. So i say a lot of my pain or anyone's pain is more in training than it happens in the race because you're trying to put out a perfect performance. Um, the pain in the race you know, can come late, but a lot of the work is done you know, in preparation to, to handle that pain. And if you can go to the line um, with a body of work, You know that you've done all the work you can where you're going to perform well as well. So yeah, I'd say for me, um, yeah, races were painful, but you did a lot of work to prepare for that. And look, if I took you for a run now, or you went for a run now, as soon as your heart rate goes up, it's painful. So as soon as you go for a run, so your heart likes to sit at 60 or 70 beats, so as soon as you take it to 120 or 130 or 140, or 100, it's painful. So it's outside the comfort zone. Your mind says to yourself, "Why are you doing this to me?" So then, what you're doing in training is preparing yourself for a mental state to be able to handle that and do the the physical work which your body can adapt to to be able to run four laps under under four minutes. Hope that makes sense
0: long-winded no it's something that i identify with and i you know for, for people that are listening that aren't distance runners or aren't crazy mad sports people i think the the importance of stressing that doing these things to our bodies and doing them relatively frequently is really amazing at resetting your own limiting beliefs about what's capable because you know, David Goggins, the the very, very famous um, African-American Navy SEAL, Ranger, ultramarathoner, I think he's done well over a hundred ultras now, talks about this 40%, like when you think you are done, you've still got 40% left. It's like a, a governor system that, that our brains put in to, to stop us from injuring ourselves, but we're actually a lot more capable than what our body lets on, and and. That happened to me when I ran my first 100 kilometer ultra down in 2018 down in in Anglesey because I did my IT band, and I had to limp for 50 of the 100 kilometers, and and but when I crossed the line, I was like, "Well, bugger me! Like I did it, and and what else can I do?" And I think that's the thing I love about a lot of this—the elite uh, level athletics and sport and. You know, it's not that I'm necessarily just so interested in it. It's the impact that it can have on all other areas of your life. And that's why I was keen to explore the the pain that you feel, you know, w- would be very quickly forgotten by that elation of winning and the, the accomplishment of achieving these amazing things.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the early things I learned too about the mind was Um, I'm not quite sure whether it was Ian Chappell, Australian Test Captain, or Greg Chappell, his brother, Australian Test Captain, that he said, and I learnt this from either one of them, I can't remember which one, but he said, when I walk, I think it was Ian, but when I walk out to to bat, I expect that I'm going to get negative thoughts. I know I'm going to get negative thoughts about the bowler or or what's happening out there. And as soon as that happens, I'm going to tell them to piss off. Because I don't want the negative thoughts, but I know that's going to happen, and it's a bit like in athletics. What I was, doing. we knew the pain was going to happen or going to, have to be part of the process, but you basically said preparing your body to 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 minimise that through preparation and just tell it to piss off, and that that's that, that's mental toughness, and that's what you train yourself to do. Because if you if you succumb to the first uh, negative thought, well, as you, you rightly said, there's so much more capacity after that first negative thought. You get rid of that and you move on and you just keep pushing yourself. I mean, for you in your sense, I mean, your first negative thought might have come at 15K and you've got 70, you know, you've got 85K to go. you think, well, how am I going to do this? You know, so, you know, if you said I'm going to stop, you know, I'm a bit sore, my hip's leg or whatever, but you push on. Um, you know, I tell this story um, about Lee's Lee's father, late father. Um, he died, a, you know, a couple of years ago, and and it's a good lesson for me as well. And you know, he was um, 58 or 59, and he was playing golf. And uh, I said, "How's your golf going?" And he said, "Oh, look." I'm 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 blowing out but I've I've um and my and my golf's not improving. I said, Well you're still you're still young enough to keep on improving your golf. He said, Oh no, now I'm too old for that. And I thought to myself, because my grandmother was alive at that stage since he was ninety six and I I thought I said to Leo, Well, you know, you can still you can still push on to the next level. And I think that's the same in life because I thought about my grandmother. If we decide at sixty or sixty five or seventy, that it's time to to retire. You've got 26 years or 36 years to slow down. It's a long time to slow down. So it doesn't matter what what age you are, whether it's 50 or 60 or 70, or you know, you've got a long time to slow down if you're going to live to 96. And you know, you can you can make improvements or uh, do other things in your life at any age in, uh, or stage in your life. And, and look what you've been doing over recent years.
0: Well, and and this ties into what you've been doing recently as well, because you you had a heart attack not that long ago, and now you're training for a sub three hour marathon, <laughs> which yeah. I think is brilliant. Are you happy to talk to us about about your challenges with your dicky ticker?
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, look. I always look. I quite. I was caught out. I was shocked, really, because. Um, I, I, I was going to work, and uh, so it was the end of the day at work, and I, I went downstairs, at the office down of the car, and I got a phone call from a work colleague, and he said, Pat, hey, can you come back and sign the document?" And I said, "Yeah, no worries." And I, as I was walking back, I didn't feel I didn't feel great walking back up to the stairs, and I, I thought, "Gee," and I felt like I had something um, stuck in stuck in my throat or like heartburn. Anyway um anyway so i signed the document i said look i think i'm just going to sit down for it and and the the office staff are giving me a hard time you know the elite athlete can't make it up the stairs everyone's sort of you know mucking around a bit so as as what happens in workplaces and i came good and then i i drove off and then i was out at the supermarket and um i just spoken to my older sister and um uh, it was her birthday, so I had spoken to her, and then I went into the supermarket. I mean, I had the same experience in the supermarket. I thought it didn't feel very well. And I, I got home, and I happened to come in the front door with Lee at the same time. And I said, look, I'm not feeling very well. I've got something, feel like I've got something. I think I'm going to the, I think I'll go to the hospital. And she said, are you sure? Are you sure you're okay? I said, yeah, I just, I just haven't had this feeling before. And I, I really wasn't thinking it was a heart attack. So... We drove off, which was about five k's to the hospital here in Ogirudonga, and as we got to near the hospital, it was, the feeling had gone. I said, no, I'm fine. I, you know, what am I going to tell them? Lo and behold, Lee at the time said, thought to herself, to you, uh, maybe we should go in there. I said, no, I'm okay. Or we, we can go back home here. I thought it had gone. Little did I know that I was actually having you know, mild heart attacks at that particular stage. So I went back home, um, had a bath had something to eat. I don't know why I had a bath but I decided to have a bath and something to eat and then I said, in in the bath it came on me again. I thought this is no good. So I got out. I said Leah said, no, this is no good. I said something's really going on. I really wasn't thinking it was a heart attack. So we drove off and by the the time we got in the car and we got close to the hospital so we're probably four or 500 metres from the hospital I was getting in a lot of trouble and I was doing all I could in terms of my breathing techniques, all the things i would learned as a track and field athlete to slow my heart rate down and to calm myself down, like you do before races, when you come off games. I was just trying to really calm myself down. So we got into the car park, and we um, was gonna go up into the car park, and I said, no, 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 you've gotta go, come on, straight into the emergency, where the ambulance is dropping, it. so she had to go up a one-way street. So I was obviously, by that stage, I knew I was in a lot of trouble. I ran in. There's a poor guy that had a baby with croup. I basically knocked him over to get in past him. I said to him, sorry, mate, I've, I've got to go ahead of you. Thank God there was someone at the triage. And I said, look, I'm not quite sure what's going on, but I've got something going on. Like she had one look at me and threw me straight into the room and the rest is history. So I, I was having mini heart attacks and then I, they, uh, you know, I ended up having a stint. Air ambulance out of dog Redonga to Melbourne. I had a stint in Melbourne the next morning. So And, look, the doctors said, you know, a lot of people die if they don't make it to hospital. So, you know, uh, I think the saving grace for me was I knew my body very well from the track and field days, but any signs, uh, the, the frustrating thing is the cardiologist in Melbourne said to me that heart health has done a lot of great things in terms of awareness about diet and exercise, cholesterol, all those things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't still have problems with your heart. So uh, it's always worth getting checked out uh, and, and making sure that your heart's going well. So I was lucky. If I decided to stay at home and be stubborn and say, I think I'll have a couple of Panadol and sleep, go to sleep that night, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you, mate. So I'm blessed I'm here. The lucky the thing is I knew myself pretty well in how I experienced and Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and run a marathon next year. So I'm going okay. Thank, thank, thank you fantastic <laughs> that's two years that's about that's uh that's uh about two years a bit uh, two and a half years ago yeah
0: well we we still have you around which we're very grateful for and <laughs> I'd love to ask you another real curly one pat what would what do you want your tombstone to st- to say mm. what do you want to be remembered for yeah
1: look i i probably need more time to think about it ah uh, look um, oh, look, I think a person that loved his family, um, loved life. Um, I mean, I don't know what word you would put on it um, on a tombstone, but look, I, 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 having experienced a child with special needs, with Ben, um, he needs care all the time, and um, like he's. Um, He's independent in terms of going to the toilet and all those things. But, you know, he, he can't he can't go down the street on his own. And some of these kids with Down syndrome, tend, but his, his IQ is not at that level, but he's a very engaging character and things like that. And that's been my big focus now in our life is that, you know, we support him. And that's been very humbling, supporting someone's life all the time. Um, I've gone off track a bit, but... Um, when he was dying, it made me um, realise how important um, we are in his life, and we're committed to that. Um, look, I don't know, mate. I suppose I just a person that loved his family, loved life, and gave it his best effort. I mean, I I, I kept on pushing with my athletic career up until I was thirty six, thirty seven, um, trying to make Olympics, make the Olympic final, be the best I can, and I think that's probably, you know, what I would think, always gave his best, always tried his best, always encouraging. So there's a lot of messages in that, but always encouraging, always trying to do the best and trying to get the best out of yourself. So that's probably about it, mate, really.
0: Oh, look, don't feel too bad, Pat. I've really thrown you under the bus there because it's something that I think more people need to think about you know what what's what's going to be my legacy and it ties into a lot of the stuff that you're talking about and the the sacrifice that you've made you know with with Benny and that that you know and the, but the wonderful lessons that you're clearly getting from these experiences and and I think if more people sat back and went, you know what do I want to be remembered for? what what impact do I want to have on this planet before I you know before I go? It would, it would allow people to maybe do more of what they are really passionate about. And, and this is only from my own experience where I did what I wasn't passionate about for a long time, for 14, well, all of my working life really up until recently. And the how good I feel doing things that I really love and how much more of a positive impact I now have on the world around me, There's just, it's just chalk and cheese. So it's a tough one to answer. So I think you answered it pretty damn well, considering there was no preparation yeah, yeah, to that at
1: all. Yeah, I, you know, I know this has come up, and I listened to um, your, your, the podcast with um, with Justin Langer and I love he I love his stuff on um, leadership. I love that stuff, and a little bit. I think he made a reference about the um, your uh, becoming your own superhero, and I thought about your superhero and I was wondering what my my who was my superhero when I was a kid and I thought you know I'm going to go back and have a look and so my superhero as a kid which is bizarre was a was um a character called Speed Racer and I looked it up on Google and Speed Racer was a a, a cartoon character from Japan and he drove a car and I can remember going out as a kid trying to jump over things or you know, fly through the air and everyone has a superhero. And I thought, what a, what, a, what, what a great thing to do. And it drove me to go back to my childhood to have a look at who was my first superhero and Speed Racer was, and it made me laugh. It, was, it made me laugh. It was really very, very interesting. And it, we, all, we all have that part of it in our body. And I, I, loved, I loved it when you, you got that as your, um, part of your podcast, I think it's terrific.
0: Well, yeah, I thank you. And and you'd be amazed to know that I know I know that cartoon. I think it goes goal speed racer, goal speed racer, go. That's right. That'd <laughs> that'd right. One. And I used to have like the, the typical Japanese cartoon uh, with all the great yeah. stuff. Yeah, I remember that yeah. from my youth as well. Yeah. Pat, yeah. I'm I'm very respectful of your time. I know you're a busy man. You're running you're the co-founder of <laughs> ZooCares. Uh, would you like yeah, to finish would you like to finish on anything before we wrap this up?
1: Um, no, I, I mean I am interested just quickly about um, for you and what you did in terms of your own personal growth about how you changed and what was the light bulb that that made it for you. I'm really interested what that turning point. If you don't mind me asking you, that back of yours, I take over the host role. <laughs> Well, this is a rare
0: treat. I'm being interviewed on my own show. How fantastic! And I absolutely, I love, I love talking about this stuff, Pat. And I look, it was a number of rock bottoms for me, but the one of the fundamental things that made me do something about it was this this moment where I was lying in my bed on a Tuesday night with about three bottles of red wine coursing through my veins, gambling on a horse race in a country I wasn't even. In spending rent money that wasn't mine. And I thought, you know what, Laban? The life that you imagine for yourself is not this. And you are, you are supposed to be doing far greater things. And and the catalyst at that point was reaching out for help. And I rang the gambler's helpline and got put in touch with a counselor who spoke to me about the incredibly high rates of suicide that are associated with gambling versus all the other addictive behaviors. And that that really shocked me. And, and then I got access to a, a gambling counselor. And after the first session, she spoke about the link to escapism as a result of growing up in a dysfunctional environment as a kid and as soon as as soon as she spoke about that it triggered this journey that i've been on since understanding what went on realizing that these things aren't bad things that happened to me they've now become the fuel for my fire to be able to take ownership of everything that's happened to me and use it to help propel me forward so that and that's what's happened and i finally got to a point where i love who i am and when you love when you properly love yourself and you start respecting yourself and you start treating yourself with kindness you don't you don't do as many self-destructive things um, and as a result you know you start bringing more positivity in your life and start bringing more positive people as well so that's a that's a very short overview of what's going on and and hopefully that answers your very very uh generous question and uh, yeah, it's no, still it's a great. so still a work in progress but um you know I'm celebrating
1: my Sorry. So that again, you're celebrating your fourth fourth year
0: of sobriety on the uh, on the there 26th of August yeah, 2020, good. and yeah. you know one of the greatest things I've ever done for me and, and my immediate family and and hopefully other people in my life as well. Yeah,
1: and and uh, if I can take the liberty of uh, of saying this, that uh, which I don't know whether your listeners have seen this, but I've seen a a. Uh, a before and after shot of you uh, in the gym and uh, you've made a massive difference uh, in your in physical space as well. So congratulations. And that's not easy. That's hard work to do as well. So congratulations. And I love this self-improvement area. It's a, it's a great area and, and we're all capable of it and right through our life. And that's why uh, I was really keen to talk to you and uh, I really loved the opportunity to, to be able to, uh, to chat to you.
0: Oh well, I mean, thank you so much, and and uh, it's it's been an absolute thrill to have you on the show, and and I know that our listeners will take uh, little snippets of of gold from from the amazing life that you've led, and and some of the amazing attributes that I think sometimes these elite athletes can not take for granted, but forget how powerful they are too. You know, people that, that could only dream of, of competing in an Olympics, which is something you've done a couple of times. So we are very grateful. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Pat Scabble. Thanks, Laban. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world – I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training Well I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.